Welcome to Hope Awakens. I am glad you're with me. It is a beautiful day in Eastern Tennessee, and wherever you are, I hope that you are being smiled on with something better than good weather with the presence of God. Thanks for making it at this new time. I'm glad it's worked out for you. Our subject carries on from where we left last night. You'll see that they fit together really well. Tonight's subject is the new normal, a world without fear. And that's really part three of three presentations that fit together like puzzle pieces. I want to welcome Intokozo, who's joining us from Hauteng province in South Africa, not far from Pretoria. Anthony is joining us from Pakistan. Avia is in Alberta, Canada. Sandra is in Oklahoma City. Linda is in Maine in the beautiful Northeast. Tom is in Phoenix, Arizona. Jean is in Hagerstown, Maryland. And I'm glad you are here. Thanks for being part of Hope Awakens. I'm John Bradshaw. This is Hope Awakens, brought to you by It Is Written. Visit us at itiswritten.com anytime. And be sure to check out our online channel, itiswritten.tv. Itiswritten.tv. You can also find us on Roku and smart TVs as well. You can stream, you can watch on demand, and you'll find programs there that you can't find anywhere else. Programs that will bless you and bless others. HopeAwakens.org is where you will find resources pertaining to this presentation and others like them. You can find resources and previous presentations and more. And it's at HopeAwakens.org that you can submit your questions. To ask your questions, as always, here's Doug Naar. Thanks, Doug. Hey, John, it's good to be here with, uh, with you and with Hope Awakens and our visitors and our viewers. You know, with all the questions that we get every night, I'm always learning. So we've got some good questions here this morning. Here's the first one. Now, the Bible says that where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And with all that's going on, the lockdown the, the, and the quarantine, is this still true even though we don't gather in person? Oh, yeah, sure it is. If you can't be together with somebody in person, you can be together in spirit. God is with you wherever you are, whatever the circumstances are. My husband believes in science and evolution. How can I prove to him about the creation? Uh, he won't accept anything from the Bible. So how do I prove to him about creation? You know what I do? I'd get him some scientific material. I'd go to the Geoscience Research Institute, the GRI. Fabulous material there. Other organizations as well. Approach him from a scientific point of view. Don't think that the Bible and science are against each other. They're absolutely not. Greatest scientist who ever lived, the God of heaven. How do I make the Sabbath a delight for my kids and not allow how I was raised to create a negative environment for them? Oh, it's the best day of the week and let your kids know that. Great day, good food, uh, special time. They're gonna go to church and see friends and, and, and church family. You're gonna get into nature if you possibly can. Just, just load it up with good fun stuff. It's a gift given to us by God. It ought to be the best day of the week. It is for me. I'm sure it will be for your children as well. Just focus on that and accentuate the positive. They'll soon learn to look forward to this day like no other day. What happens when someone dies? Do they immediately go to heaven or do they immediately go to hell? I would encourage you to be sure that you look at last night's presentation. That's important you do that. Hopeawakens.org is where you'll find it. Now, having said that, 
Uh, what I'd also encourage you to do is to think about what the Bible says. What happens when a person dies? Jesus said, our friend Lazarus is asleep. And that entire passage, which takes up most of John chapter 11, deals with Lazarus dying, but he was asleep. Look through the Bible where it says again and again and again and again and again that the dead sleep. The reason we get confused about this is because of culture and tradition. If you look at just the Bible, you are not going to be confused at all. Now, I know that Satan and his evil angels can impersonate dead loved ones. So what should I say to a person who says that this has happened to them? Well, whatever you say, you might want to say it really gently. But if you get an opportunity to share with someone from the Bible, maybe even from a sort of a common sense point of view, gently share about the Bible, but pray and pray and pray before you share, because you want to make the strongest impression, the best impression possible. My nine-year-old would like to ask, why does God allow some humans to be translated to heaven at the second coming, and yet He allows others to remain asleep in the grave? Oh, it's a good question. We'd all like to be here when Jesus comes back. But what you're asking is, why don't people live to be 200, 300, 400, 500 years of age? Uh, unfortunately, there's death in the world, and if Jesus doesn't come back soon enough, folks are going to pass away. Really, that's the reason. I hope and pray that hope awakens never ends. Oh, hey, that, that, that's a question I like. Well, you keep on listening because we're going to tell you soon what will happen next. Maybe it won't end. There's got to be more, so hang in there with us. When God says surrender your life to Him and you surrender your life to Him, what do you do next? You surrender some more. Life is about living surrendered to Jesus. Invite Him into your life. And as Jesus said, it is written. We like those verses. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now with Jesus in your life, you're walking in His footsteps. Now, why is Jesus the one doing things and not the Father, God? Well, I think you'll find that the Father does plenty. But it was Jesus who came to the earth to represent the Father and to show us what God is really like. So much of what we see in the Bible focuses around the life and the ministry of Jesus. Now, last night you talked about are dead and those who are resurrected. Well, what happens to people who have been cremated, are lost out in the sea, eaten by sharks, or their bodies never found? They don't have a body, so how can they resurrect? Oh, good question. But here's what you're going to find. Everyone receives a new body in the resurrection. Everybody. And don't think for a moment that God is dependent upon whatever He can find laying in the grave there to piece back together and make a new body. We are given new bodies, no matter how you checked out of this world. In regards to the Sabbath, what if I eat out on the Sabbath, need to go do some shopping, some groceries on the Sabbath, laundry, stay at home and relax and pray? Is it a sin? Am I breaking the, the Sabbath commandment? Uh, okay, emergencies sometimes come up. But you notice the Bible calls the sixth day of the week the preparation day. And so we use that day to prepare for eventualities that might come up on the Sabbath. You don't want to do those things. The Bible is clear, in it thou shalt not do any work. Nehemiah spoke very clearly about transacting business. Make it God's day. You don't want those distractions and diversions. Use the preparation day to get ahead. Understand that it may be times your ox is in the ditch, but some people's ox seems to live in the ditch, in which case get a new ox or fill in the ditch. The Bible says that we must confess our sins. How do I know that I've confessed all of my sins? And what if I've forgotten something? <laughs> yeah, here's what you do. You go to God and you say, I'm sorry. If there's anything I've forgotten, I'm sorry about that. We are saved by grace through faith. 
and not by grace through neurosis. Don't let that kind of unnecessary worry suck the joy out of your life. Confess and tell God you want everything to be clean. He hears you. You'll be okay. Now, my mother believes that I should go to church on Sunday, and I believe that Saturday is the Sabbath and we should keep it. And we got into a big argument because I did not want to go with her to church on Sunday. And she said that if I do not go with her, she's going to kick me out of the house. My question is, what should I do? Even if I go to church on Sunday, will God wink at my ignorance? Help me out here. Okay. Well, first, I don't know how old you are. Uh, that might be relevant and it might not be. You want to honor your father and your mother, but you've got a heavenly father to honor as well. First thing, don't get into big arguments. They just don't help. Second thing, decide what you're going to do about God's day and about honoring God. Then work it out how you can meet your mother as far as possible to make her happy as well. Fascinating thing in the story of Naaman, Naaman went back home and he took his, it says in the passage, he would take his master, the man he served, to the pagan temple when he went to offer to the pagan gods. Naaman was somehow still involved in that. He wasn't worshiping, but he was present because duty bound him to be present. So, Honor your mother, don't argue, keep the Sabbath, honor God. Look at what Daniel did and his three friends. It, it got tricky for them, but God blessed them. And then do what you can to, 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 to please your mother and ameliorate her concerns. Are you allowed to eat anything on Sabbath evening? And, and when can you eat on Sabbath? Listen, we're starting to look at this, uh, uh, some at least are looking this, at this through a funny lens. The day is a joyous day, not a day of fasting. It was the Pharisees who wanted to suck all the joy out of the Sabbath back in the time of Jesus. And Jesus came to say, it's a time of joy, a time of healing. So no, you eat, eat well, enjoy that. Don't, don't, for, the, for goodness sake, don't let this day in any way become a trial or a chore. And when Jesus is living his life in you, it won't be. What will happen to a pregnant woman when Jesus returns in his glory? Well, giving her the benefit of the doubt, she'll be saved and she'll be translated to heaven. What you're really asking is about the unborn child. We don't know. What we do know is the unborn child will not be lost or destroyed. That's life. Jesus rec recognizes that. So what we'll know is that somehow that child will be raised in heaven. Hard to imagine there'll be childbirth in heaven, but God's got it all figured out and both of them will be saved when Jesus comes back. If our parents have passed away, will we recognize them in heaven? Sure we will. They recognized Jesus when he came back. There was no problem there. So it seems to me we'll recognize our loved ones as well. Since the Holy Spirit is a person, will we be able to see the Holy Spirit when we get to heaven? Well, I think so. There are three members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Seems that we probably will. Let's wait till we get there. Then we'll know for sure. Now, John, why didn't God just destroy Lucifer when he rebelled? Well, he could have, but imagine what that would have done in heaven. What if there were some in heaven who were wondering about Lucifer? Maybe they weren't certain whether Lucifer was right or wrong. Sometimes it takes time to show all of the aspects of this great battle between sin and evil. God wanted to be seen to be just. So he's allowing this to play out so we won't have any questions about the, the love and the goodness of God. Now, a friend of mine had a near-death experience, and she truly believes that it came from God. How do I get her to see that Satan can use this to deceive us? Carefully, prayerfully, have her read the Bible if that's possible. I think we might have addressed that one before, so we won't take too much more time on this one. How do I relate to the Sabbath when everyone else tells me that it really doesn't depend what day you worship on? You know, you can worship God on any day of the week. 
How do you relate to the seventh commandment when your friends tell you to share it around with everybody? How do you relate to that other commandment that says thou shalt not steal when someone says, just go ahead and steal it? How do you relate to the one about idols when somebody says, bow down and worship that thing? If you can answer those questions, I think you've answered this one yourself. I would like to know, how can I overcome my desire for pornography? I really need help. Yes, you do. Thankfully, there is someone who can give you help, and that's Jesus. Now, I've only got seconds, not hours, to share this with you. So let me say this. Number one, you recognize it's wrong and it's got to go. Number two, you go to Jesus and you say, you've got to take this away no matter what it takes. Number three, go to your computer, delete everything that should be deleted. Number four, put some blocking software on there, but you're clever enough to get around that. So number five, get some accountability partners, someone who has accessed your devices at all times and can look and will look at what you are looking at. Then remember number six, Romans 6 and verse 11. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but a life unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Consider yourself dead to the sin. A dead person doesn't respond to sin. And number seven, stop feeding it. When you walk through the mall, don't walk past Victoria's Secret and gaze at the super life-size or larger-than-life-size pictures. If there are magazines with, with stuff in there, get rid of them. You know what I mean? Don't go to this website or that website. Stop feeding it. Number eight. I think it's number eight. Remember now that women or men, not sure which direction you're coming from, are there to respect. They're not there as objects. They're not there to disrespect. And pornography is about the greatest disrespect to women that you could possibly find. Uh, so when you get that in your head, they're not there for me to lust after and to be disrespectful about. It's going to help you. So put those things in place, but go to Jesus. And last point, if you need to get help from a counselor, a pastor, uh, someone to go talk to, do that. Remember, God will get you through. He's done it for others. He'll do it for you. Last question. Now, the next solar eclipse will be 2024. That will make a huge X over America. Now, the last one was 2017. Any interpretation about this? Yes, yes, I have an interpretation. And here it is. Don't even give that a second thought. It's got nothing to do with nothing. Thanks for your questions. We'll do them again tonight. But now I've got a special guest that I'm itching to introduce to you. Dr. Jose Cortez Jr. is a minister of the Bible and is a teacher and an equipper. He's based in Columbia, Maryland, and is a leader in the area of equipping people to share their faith. For that reason, I'm excited to have Dr. Cortez with me. Dr. Jose Cortez Jr., thanks for joining me. Hey, John, how are you? Hey, it's really good to be with you. I hope you and your family are doing okay in these odd times. You're all okay? We're doing well. We're staying home. We're trying to do as much as we can to care for people around us, at times physically, other times virtually, but we're doing our best. Amen. Thank God for you. Look, hope here you're doing at, well. Yes, by the grace of God. Here at Hope Awakens, we get a lot of questions from people saying, how do I share my faith with someone else? like uh, people who aren't that interested or who once were interested, but now they're not, or people who don't have that same Christian orientation as me. So you've dedicated your life's work to this. What advice would you have for people who are looking to share their faith in God with others? I think if you want to share your faith with others, one of the best things that you can do is to love them. At times we want to just preach to people. We want to teach them. Uh, and we don't want to love them. And when we try to do those things without loving them and without taking time for them, uh, our approaches, our intentions may come across as spam. So uh, first, before you do anything, you need to love people in very special ways. You need to uh, have them enjoy, hang out with you. You need to have, make sure that they 
enjoy your presence and your company before you can even say anything about God. Uh, that's that's what I would that's what I would do. And eventually, I notice that when I love people and I treat them well, uh, they ask uh, and they are interested in knowing more about my faith and about some of the things that I do as a Christian. You might have at least partially answered this next question already. What are some common mistakes that people make when it comes to sharing their faith with others? I have noticed that some of us as Christians, at times we come across as if we're better than the rest of the people. We uh, come across as if we are more perfect than everybody else. And we don't realize that people didn't love Jesus because he dressed better than them or because he ate better than them. People love Jesus because uh, Jesus loved people. So uh, when was the last time that you told someone that you're better than they are and they continue to like you? As a Christian, we must not do that. Don't, don't, don't assume that you're better than people. Don't, uh, don't tell them that you're better than them just because you have something that they don't have. On the contrary, make your life so attract, uh, attractive to them that they might want to do what you do as well. So, so how then does a person balance urgency? I really want to see my spouse come to Jesus with patience. Uh, the Holy Spirit brings conviction. We're just messengers. But, you know, sometimes you want to microwave this process rather than letting it bake slowly. How do we find the balance? Yeah, I know some people who want to share the Bible in one day wherever they meet. So uh, I will say love, treat them well, uh, show them that there is something special about you. I'm not talking about being weird. I'm talking about being different. And by being different, I mean love the person who is next to you and let them know that you enjoy uh, spending time with them. Let them talk. Don't do all the talking yourself. Let them talk. So once you start doing that, they want to hang out with you. Then you pray for them. You need to pray for them because there are some things that we cannot do, only the Holy Spirit can do in the heart of that person. Uh, of course, when they ask, share. And rather than having to share deep biblical concepts, you can share some of the things that God has done in your life and let them know how your, your life has been benefited and blessed by having God and Jesus in your life. And finally, don't be afraid to ask. It's okay to ask. It's okay to ask them to watch Hope Awakens with you. Uh, it is okay to ask them once the churches open up again to come to church with you and accompany you. Uh, it is okay to ask them, hey, have you thought about giving your life to Jesus? Don't be pushy, but when they ask, don't be afraid to share your testimony and to ask a question. Would you like to have what I have? And that would be awesome if we can go through this journey together. Beautiful. Dr. Cortez, one more question for you. So um, you've given us so much already, but what a, is someone saying, I want to share my faith. I don't know how to begin. I'm going to try to love them. What are one, two, three things that you can say, try this. Here are some entering approaches or some ways that you can maybe warm somebody up to knowing more about what you know and who you know. Okay, spending time with a person, uh, being present, the person is going through difficult times. Uh, and please, uh, John, it is very important because at times as Christians, we think that by having a one-time encounter with someone, that is enough. Uh, that is not enough. It is important to be there on a regular basis for the person that we want to share the love of God with. So they see us and they begin to trust us and they begin to see that we're not just trying to share the gospel with them, but that we're there because we are their friends and we love them. Sharing a meal with someone. Uh, there is nothing more powerful than sitting together on a regular basis and sharing a meal and asking that person, what is hurting you? What is bugging you? Uh, how has your week uh, been? Uh, creating intimacy, creating a connection, creating that bond uh, is something that has no, uh, cannot be replaced in any way when it comes to sharing the gospel. People will only trust you if they are able to spend time with you and if they know that you really care. 
once that happens, once that happens, things may change. And, and you may be able to share some other things. When they ask, you may be able to share how God has blessed your life, how God has made a difference in your life, how you believe in has uh, transformed the way you look at things and uh, the situations that you go through in your in your personal life, in your work life, in your uh, school life. And they may be able to say, hey, um, this is something that I want to do. When they do that, then you ask, would you like to join me? Would you like to believe? Would you like to ask Jesus into your heart? But, but you cannot do that by staying away from them and only meeting them once in a while and trying to push religion at them all the time. I would say take time to eat with them, enjoy a meal on a regular basis, and talk. Fantastic. Dr. Jose Cortez, I cannot express my appreciation enough. I'm so glad you took time to be with us today. Thank you. God bless you. Much love, John. Take care, my friend. Praying for you. Thank you very much. Dr. Jose Cortez, Jr., our guest today on Hope Awakens. Uh, truly a blessing. Thanks. We are going to pray together and then dive into our Bible subject. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the opportunity to come to your word and now speak to us. It's your word. Guide us by your spirit. Give us hope. Help us to navigate the confusing maze that is this world right now. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our subject is a planet in lockdown. And that's been an interesting feature of this whole pandemic, lockdown. Not every place has called it that. Some have called it shelter in place or stay at home. Wuhan, China, the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, was under lockdown for 76 days. A third of the world's population has been on lockdown. Now, some places have begun to ease restrictions, but in spite of that, we've been told the effects of this will stay for a while. Germany has announced that Oktoberfest, which happens mostly in September, Septemberfest, will not happen this year. In Spain, people were not allowed to leave their homes except to buy food and medical supplies or to walk the dog. Only reasons you were allowed out. Anyone who broke the rules faced fines of more than $1,000. Children weren't allowed outside at all for six weeks even to accompany their parents to the grocery store. Schools in most all countries have been closed with students doing classes online in many places. When New Zealand eased restrictions and went from level four to level three, which was described as level four with fast food, McDonald's ran out of lettuce, KFC ran out of chicken, and police had to control crowds at burger joints. Says something about priorities. Lockdown, social distancing, now, the effects of locking down a society or prolonged social distancing can be very serious. The divorce rate is evidently going up in many places. Incidents of domestic violence also up, and that's very serious. And someone just two nights ago asked me to pray for her elderly mother. Like so many elderly people, she's cut off from the outside world, cut off from those she loves, and it's a real challenge. This person said to me, my mother has been crying about how hard this is. In many places, funerals haven't been happening or they're taking place with just the fewest amount of people present. So lockdown means that people haven't even been able to grieve in the customary way, in the, the healthy way. In some locations, people have been flouting the rules. You've heard about that. Some places, people have been protesting, and this is out of anger, which comes from frustration. But why the isolation? Why the lockdowns? It's because authorities have been wanting to contain a deadly virus 
They're wanting to keep it from spreading. Well, right now, I am going to share with you that there is coming a time when this entire planet will be on lockdown for essentially the same reason, to flatten the curve, to contain a deadly virus, to contain sin and to stop it from spreading. The good news is that this lockdown we're looking at is only temporary, and it will be the last time we ever see a planet on lockdown. Now, the idea of isolation or quarantine isn't new. You could say the first quarantined family was Noah's family, quarantined on an ark before, during, and after the worst storm ever to strike planet Earth. There's an interesting passage of the Bible dealing with a time still in the future. In fact, after the return of Jesus. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus' return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus is going to come back to this earth. That's what we are all looking forward to. That he came to earth a first time is an indisputable fact. He came as the Messiah. And let me say something. People will say, I have no problem with Jesus. He was a good man. Oh, no, you can't get away with that. He was either the Messiah or a bad man. Only a crazy man would think that he was sent by God and then allow himself to be nailed to a cross for someone else's sins and tell others that that's why he was here. So you can't sit on the fence on this one. Jesus is either who he says he is, the divine son of God, or he was a madman bereft of good sense. If he was a madman, so be it. But if he wasn't, I don't know how you could ignore him. After 4,000 years, the world was at an exceedingly low ebb. God's own people had turned their back on him to the extent that they held the prophecies of the Messiah in their hands, and yet they weren't ready to accept the Messiah when he came to earth. Even when the wise men came from the east and asked about the Messiah, Herod the king gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. This wasn't done secretly. The religious leaders were summoned by the king. There are some characters here who have traveled a very long way to find the Messiah. What's that all about? Where will the Messiah be born? They consulted the ancient scrolls and they said to him, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old from everlasting. See, the prophet Micah said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So they knew. Herod dispatches the wise men to Bethlehem. Off they go. They don't bring the child back to Jerusalem as Herod asked, but instead they go to their home country without returning to Jerusalem. Matthew 2.16 says, Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Everyone in Jerusalem knew about the visit of the wise men. Everyone in town knew about the agitated king. And they didn't trust him. Herod was cold-hearted, ruthless, nihilistic. 
he had members of his own family put to death, including wives and children. When all of those poor children in Bethlehem were killed, what do you think the talk of the town was? Herod, he was told the Messiah was in Bethlehem, but those visitors from the east didn't do what he asked. He's worried about another king rising up. And don't you think people would have said, Messiah? Oh yes, the Messiah. Daniel's prophecy had told them about it way back then. It had forecast when Messiah would arise. They had the scrolls. They had the malevolent Herod sounding the alarm about the Messiah being in their midst. And Israel still cratered morally and religiously. Jesus came into the world at its nadir, its low point, And He is going to come back again as it was in the days of Noah. The signs around us suggest He's going to come back soon. 2,000 years ago, Jesus spoke of pestilences, SARS, and Ebola, and swine flu, and bird flu, and mad cow, and the Zika virus. Remember that? COVID-19. We are there, ladies and gentlemen. And remember what Jesus said, Luke 21, verse 28. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. He's coming back. Let me tell you that again. He's coming back. And when He does, Paul wrote, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now I want to look at a stunning piece of writing found just inside the back cover of the Bible. It is chapter 1187 of the Bible. It is Revelation chapter 20. Revelation was written by John, the beloved disciple, while he was under house arrest on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. Patmos is a Greek island, even though it's 35 miles from Turkey and 160 miles from Athens. It's about one-third the size of Manhattan. In Revelation 19, John has described the return of Jesus to the world. And so now he starts Revelation chapter 20 by saying, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the, of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is the millennium that you hear about. Now, many people believe that Jesus is going to reign on the earth during the millennium. So let's look and see what's going on. An angel comes down from heaven, takes hold of the devil, binds him for a thousand years, a millennium. The angel is depicted as, as having a chain is depicted as tying up the devil with that chain. Verse 3, And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, 
so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So Satan is bound, and Satan cannot deceive anyone for a thousand years. But then he'll be released for a while. The question is, how do you bind an angel, a fallen angel? And what's this bottomless pit that he's placed into? It could be that he's dropped into a really deep hole. Or let's remember what happens when Jesus returns. This is 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the element will melt, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. You'll remember the return of Jesus depicted in Daniel 2. The stone cut out without hands, it lands on the feet of the image and sweeps away the kingdoms of the world. When Jesus comes back, the world is destroyed. Paul wrote about those who will be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. The destroyed earth is now represented as a bottomless pit, an abyss, if you'd like to look at the original language. Satan is bound because he's confined here. He's isolated, he's quarantined on this desolate earth with no one to tempt. The earth is in lockdown at this time. When Jesus returns, the earth is destroyed. Satan is bound. But we read that after this, Satan is going to be released for a time. Look at verse 4 with me. It tells us some things. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Notice, there are people here who had died, but now they're alive. That means there has to have been a resurrection. We read earlier that when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ shall rise. And here are those who have been raised, and they are shown as being with Jesus. So where are they? If they're with Jesus, they're in heaven. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus returns. We are out of here. We are going to heaven. The earth is destroyed. Satan is bound here for a millennium. The planet will be in lockdown. Now, why would that be? I want to suggest something to you. The millennium time period is a time when God will not only be just, but He will be seen to be just. There will be some major questions being asked throughout the universe. Now, I don't know for sure, but if an angel had been in heaven for how many years? Might it ever occur to God that before this angel is forever punished, that everyone in the universe should see that Satan is beyond help? that he would never, ever repent. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not suggesting God is giving him a chance to repent. He's not. 
but he's showing us that even after a thousand years of reflecting upon the misery he has caused, and remember he's on a desolated earth, thinking about the lives that he has cost, the destruction that he's brought about, and the pain that he has delivered to the heart of God, we see even after all of that, Satan is still thoroughly wicked and completely lost. Bound for a thousand years, Jesus returns. There's a resurrection. The saved go to heaven. Satan is bound here on the earth. Revelation 20 verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And then referring back to the first resurrection, John writes, this is the first resurrection. Now notice something. The lost live again. Isn't that something? Destroyed when Jesus returns, there's a second resurrection at the end of the thousand years. When the thousand years are finished. John 5, starting in verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Two resurrections, the resurrection to life when Jesus returns, the resurrection to condemnation at the end of the thousand years. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him how long? A thousand years. Now, we'll talk in our next presentation about the second death, but look at this. Those who are raised in the first resurrection, raised to meet Jesus when he returns, they will be priests with God and will reign with him for a thousand years. You know, there's something about human beings that Satan understands well. You've likely heard of that famous marshmallow experiment conducted back in 1972. Walter Mischel was a psychologist at Stanford University, California. He carried out an experiment in which a child was offered a small reward right away or two small rewards if they waited 15 minutes. During the 15 minutes, the researcher left the room. The kids got either a marshmallow or a pretzel stick. One now, two later if you don't eat the one now. The experiment was designed to shed light on delayed gratification. How people differentiate between taking something now or waiting for something better later. This is a challenge we face with matters of eternity. We tend to think of what we can get in this world as the goal. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not against achieving and having and so forth in this world. Wealth is certainly not a sin. And if God blesses you with money and possessions, then you can thank Him for that and honor Him through them. But the challenge arises when we see cars and homes and money as the goal, as the main priority, rather than seeing heaven as the priority, honoring God as the priority. Jesus offers you peace in this world. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you a life of meaning, a life of integrity. 
The world tends to offer us the things that are shallow and unimportant, and we can confuse the two or prioritize wrong. Our Stanford marshmallow test might, might just be this, our marshmallow test. God offers us the opportunity to be priests of God and of Christ and to reign with Him for a thousand years. But we might tend to be distracted by the praise of others, by possessions, by the always changing fashions of the world. Let me encourage you. Paul wrote to the Colossians and said, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Notice, seek those things which are above. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Notice what the apostle said. Set your mind on things above. He said, Christ is our life. And when He comes back, we'll be with Him in glory. Friend, how are your priorities? Where are you looking right now? One day we'll have the opportunity to sit with Jesus in heaven, and you'll be glad then that you didn't get sucked into the distractions of this old world. And look at what God says. He will do this for you. Look how hopeful this is. Ezekiel chapter 36, God says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. You see what God will do in your life? He can change your heart, change your priorities, change your desires when He gives you a new heart. If you're thinking, my priorities are all wrong, so therefore there's no hope for me, look to what God does in your life. Look at how God can change your tastes and your desires and your wants and your priorities. A new heart. This is what God can do, what God will do. In fact, what God is waiting to do for you. How do you get that new heart? You ask Him for it. You invite Jesus to take your heart and make it new. And then you believe that He's given you a new heart. You believe it. As Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Too many people sell God short. I'm an angry person and I'll always be this way. I'm a jealous person, a dishonest person, an immoral person, and I will always be this way. Well, if that's what you think, then that's what you'll be. <clears throat> but if you'll accept what Jesus has done for you, if you will believe that God forgives you and gives you a new heart, if you believe that Jesus lives His life in you when you invite Him to do so, you'll experience a radical change in your mind and in your life. You'll grow. You'll develop as a believer. You might still make mistakes, but you'll grow. Some of your bad habits will just disappear. Others, a little more stubborn, because maybe because of how you are wired, how deep they go, maybe because of your environment, because of whatever. But because you are looking in faith to Jesus, believing that He has forgiven you, 
you are going to continue to grow in His grace and experience more and more of His presence. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus spoke of heaven's work of grace in the human heart when He said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Then he said in verse 28, For the earth yields crops by itself. Notice, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full grain in the head. This is the work of grace in your life as you grow more and more, as Jesus' character is seen more and more in your life. Don't get discouraged. If today you see that your priorities are out of whack, if you recognize right now that your main desire is not to reign with Christ, if you can admit that you are more enamored with getting stuff and consuming entertainment and letting your mind wander into unhealthy places, if that's your experience now, God wants to give you a new experience. And He will if you want it, if you ask for that, if you accept it from Jesus, right now. Revelation 20, verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from prison. The second resurrection has taken place. Satan is released from prison because he has someone to tempt again as the lost have been raised from the dead. Now, let me come back to something. Back in verse 4, we read that judgment was given to the saved in heaven. This is fascinating. I mentioned that God is going to be seen to be just in heaven. And here, while the world is in complete lockdown and the saved are in heaven for 1,000 years, God's people have the opportunity to look with God at His work of judgment. Imagine getting to heaven and finding that someone you thought would be there is not there or discovering that someone you were sure would not be there is there. What God does is He opens up the books of record so we can look into the decisions that He has made. Any questions you might have will be answered. Any thoughts you might have had, they'll be addressed. God is just and will be seen to be just. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then he wrote, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? This is when that happens. We look into the decisions God has made in the judgment and we'll agree that all of God's decisions are fair and just and right. So, Satan is released from his prison. The lost have been raised from the dead and this is the end of the 1,000 years. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 8, that Satan will go out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now, this is where we really need to look at how we interpret the Bible. Gog and Magog are sometimes interpreted to represent countries in Europe or in the Middle East. Russia and Turkey are frequently mentioned in some kind of end-time war against Israel. But let's look at how we're going to interpret this. Gog and Magog, where did they first appear in the Bible? Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39. In Ezekiel, Gog and Magog represent the enemies of God. Now, 
The book of Revelation is written largely in figures, in types and images. Almost three quarters of all the verses in Revelation contain references of some kind or quotes, direct quotes, from the Old Testament. The beasts in chapter 13, for example, those images are drawn from the book of Daniel. The woman in Revelation 17, drawn from the book of Jeremiah. The leaves on the tree of life that John wrote about, that comes from Ezekiel. John is writing to a people whose frame of reference is the Old Testament. So he's trying to describe a power in earth's last days. And then he says, I know what, I'll go to the Old Testament, borrow the image of Babylon to represent this terrible power in earth's last days. His readers read Babylon and Revelation and they say, oh, we know know what he's talking about. We're familiar with that. We get that. So here he writes about Gog and Magog and his readers say, okay, we know that he's talking about the enemies of God because that's how Ezekiel used the phrase. The devil is going to deceive those who are opposed to God. And that's what he does. The lost are raised from the dead and they realize we have not been given immortality. We are still a mess. Satan inspires them to rebel against God so they can take the holy city because life is in there. Verse 9 shows us something. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. What city? It's the new Jerusalem, which has come down from heaven. You read that more clearly in chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem comes to the earth. The saved are on the inside. The lost are on the outside. Did you ever have an experience where you knew you'd missed out on something? It's usually not a great feeling. I've seen people miss buses or planes, and sometimes they're distraught because they just had to be on that bus or plane. But now you've got people who are outside the New Jerusalem. They realize now that it is forever too late. They simply cannot be saved. Imagine the desperation people will feel then. In Revelation 22, the picture is painted clearly. Jesus says, He who was unjust, let him be unjust still. He who was filthy, let him be filthy still. He who was righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. In Revelation 6, the Bible speaks of the return of Jesus when it says, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Imagine how you'd feel to know that you had every chance to follow and accept Jesus and you hadn't taken it. 
In the Old Testament, the story is told of Esau who sold the birthright, the special privileges that belonged to the firstborn. He sold the birthright for a meal of lentil stew. Why in the world would someone do that? Well, yeah, he was hungry, sure. But didn't he realize he would get over his hunger? He could have waited. If he really had wanted that food, he could have bought it without paying nearly so much. All that is true. But remember the marshmallow experiment carried out by Stanford University? People aren't good at delayed gratification. We want what we want when we want it. Esau wanted that food. He was faint with hunger. He couldn't wait. Well, no, that's not right. He wouldn't wait. Can you think of there being a reason ever, ever a reason that you should wait to come to Jesus in faith? Let's think that through. According to the Bible, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin brings death with it because sin is us going our way and separating from God. God is vast, yet we separate from him because of sin. But what does the word of God tell us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So God's done what God can do. He says, sin is going to cause you your existence. But instead of you dying, Jesus will die. Heaven loves you so much that heaven is willing to take the hit. And we can barely even imagine what the death of Jesus means to heaven, to God, to the Godhead. Jesus died for you. He says, if you just let me, I'll take your heart and do something special. Paul described it in Philippians chapter 2. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And we say, ah, but we're weak. Ah, but we're faulty. Oh, we're undeserving. You better believe that we're undeserving. No one's going to go to heaven because they deserve. We're going to go there because Jesus deserves. And he's offered you everlasting life. By the way, don't think for a moment that everlasting life takes away your fun or removes the things that you love. No, no. Everlasting life comes into your life so that your experience on this earth is better. You love life even more. God bestows special gifts on you. And as you feed on his word more and more, you appreciate more and more the things of heaven. You get to know God well, you'll love him well. Philippians 1 and verse 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus gets into your life and he does the work that you could never do. Our role is to say, go ahead, do your work. Let me simply follow you. Do your will. I'll do things your way. That's Christianity. There is a God who loves me, a Savior who died for me. His way is better. I want that done in my life so that I can live with integrity, honor God, and throughout eternity be with those who love me most. Jesus gave us wonderful instruction in Luke chapter 22 when he prayed and he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, 
but your will be done. Do you think Jesus wanted to go to that old rugged cross and die that awful death? Do you think he wanted to do that? Oh no, take it away, but not my will, your will. We can pray that same prayer today. Not my will, your will. There is coming a day soon when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down from God out of heaven. And you can be in that. The earth is going to be made new, all new. He's making it new for you. And why would you miss that? Why would you miss that? There will be people on the outside of the holy city looking in, knowing they can never get in. In that time, everyone who has ever lived will be together in one place at one time. And those on the outside know that they're lost. Don't be there. Jesus is encouraging you to be on the inside of that city. Revelation 20 verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Jesus is inviting. He's knocking on the door of your heart, inviting you to give him your heart, bidding you come to me. He's coming back soon. What would the second coming of Jesus be like? The heavens depart as a scroll and Jesus comes riding down through the great corridors of space. And why is he coming back? He's coming back for you. After Jesus returns, the millennium takes place. After the millennium, we're back on an earth that is recreated, maybe right before our eyes. He invites it's for us to accept, but I'm weak, he's strong. I'm sinful, he's holy and pure. He will unite his life with your life and make that one great life for eternity. Do you want that life? I think you do. Let's pray with me now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, for the hope we have in the second coming of Jesus. We look forward, Lord, to that time when Jesus returns. And now we're going to claim Jesus by faith. Friend, will you do that? We claim him by faith. We accept his righteousness, so that based on what Jesus has done, we may inherit everlasting life. Now take our lives and make them yours, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, don't miss tonight, The New Normal, A World Without Fear. It's part three of this three-part series. Head to hopeawakens.org, watch previous presentations, and get our free study resources. Thanks for joining me. God bless and keep you.